Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, brought to you by the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm Paul Jarvis, the editor, and I'm joined by Deputy Editor Jonathan Davis. Hello. There's a distinct maple flavour to this episode as we take a closer look at the Canadian P3 market. There were plenty of issues coming out of the recent annual conference of the Canadian Council for PPPs, or CCPPP, and we're going to delve into a few of the big topics bringing you the insight that we gained from speaking to and hearing from the leading players in what is widely regarded as the leading market in the global P3 industry. So, Paul, this was actually my first CCPPP, and this was the first one post-pandemic that's been done in person. I know you've been a couple of times, so has it changed for you over the years? And what was the big topics this year? Well, I think probably first of all, we should acknowledge that this was the council's 30th annual conference. And uh, I haven't been that many times, but there was at least one person there. I think the, the, the chair of CCPPP, Mark Bain, mentioned that he was 30 for 30, uh, which is pretty good going. It's impressive. I think in that time, you know, the country's gone from being a small market of a handful of deals to, well, almost certainly the biggest by volume anywhere in the world. I remember when the council would sort of give an update on Canada's pipeline to date in previous years and sort of talk reverentially really about the number of projects happening in the UK because that was the benchmark at the time. I think a lot of credit really has to go to the council for the work they have done to keep informing and educating policymakers and decision makers on the benefits and the reasons behind using P3. It's um, it's proved quite a successful approach for them and I guess long may that continue. I I thought Lisa Mitchell, who has taken over as the uh, chief executive of CCPPP and the president, did a really interesting speech and uh, opening remarks at at the beginning and really set the tone. And there's a lot of change and a lot of headwinds, I think she said at one point. And that is sparking, as you say, it is a moment for thought. Things are kind of evolving. You've got new models, which I think we'll touch on a bit later, but also new priorities and I know that you saw there were some omissions as well as some new things being put forward. Yes, I think, you know, was it Lisa say she said we are the nation builders. Um, so it's quite a strong sort of statement. But it was very clear, wasn't it, I think, coming out of the conference that the work of the CCPPP is far from done. There's still plenty of questions around the use of PPP, um, use of different models. As you say, we'll talk about that a bit later. But certainly... There's enough there to um, to keep them busy for, for some time. And I think, yeah, you talk about omissions. The thing that sort of was on a lot of people's minds was this question of O&M, operation and maintenance, and where that fits in under some of the new models. You know, the Infrastructure Ontario put out their pipeline at the conference, and it was quite clear that many of the projects in that pipeline are sort of earmarked for design build finance which obviously misses out the own part and there were various panel sessions that I attended where people were talking quite a lot about that issue what happens to O&M and I think it's a wider question really for the P3 model if you're not including O&M in the P3 contract then are you actually missing out on a big benefit of of the model because We've always talked about one of the reasons that PFI in the UK, for example, was first created was because there were a lot of public assets that were being badly or poorly maintained simply because, you know, whenever there's a 
problem with budgets whenever there's there's need for to take money from one place to another it's the um, the maintenance budget that sort of gets cut first because it's not necessarily a frontline requirement and if the building isn't leaking then great we'll use that money for for something else the problem comes when the building starts leaking and you realize that you haven't actually got that maintenance anymore and i think you know that p3 was meant to ring fence that so yeah, I think there are some questions to be answered there. I certainly think you know, Michael Lindsay, Chief Executive of Infrastructure Ontario, did get asked that uh, and insisted that you know, there would be efforts to keep O&M involved. But you know, one private sector sources at the event did say to me when we were talking about this that you know, if the money isn't there at the outset, it's unlikely that it's suddenly going to appear later in the process. What is the argument for not having the O&M on the contracts why would you choose just dbf did they say i think it's really about sort of bearing down on on the costs and um you know trying to make it attractive to some of the investors who maybe don't want the long-term play um and yeah sort of reducing that overall long-term commitment there are contractors out there who don't want to get involved because they don't want to get an entanglement keeps them tied to a project for sort of 20 or 30 years. Yeah. I mean, and we've seen with Ontario's announcements over the last couple of years, that they're very keen to keep all the options on the table, aren't they? And that in their recent um, pipeline update, as you mentioned, they've got their own key at the bottom for all the different models that they might use. And nothing really seems to be falling off that list, but we are adding quite a lot more on there. But managing that and you see the value for money kind of assessments using all these different models. It's going to be interesting to see how confident people are in generating the value for money over that long term when you're changing it so much and the data must be smaller. Yes, definitely. Yeah, I think it's definitely an issue that we'll see playing out across different projects, across different provinces in, in Canada and different states in the US as well. I think another sort of theme really coming from the event as well is that question of risk transfer, which I know that you've been sort of looking into a bit as well, John. Yeah, definitely. I think this has been the big story kind of around the world for P3s at the moment, which is how do you reevaluate using this model when there's a completely different floor that you're trying to build them off? You've got these global uncertainties that are affecting every single project and making you recalculate how you do it. So these long-term projects are difficult to do especially when you've got inflation and commodity prices and labor issues. So we see that conversation repeatedly coming up about how you cope with that. And I don't think anyone's really got the answer, especially as it's so dynamic. And we're seeing at the moment some early signs that say inflation is starting to be past its peak, but it's still way too early to tell. That being said, What I thought was interesting was that investors are still very bullish on this. We saw a representative from Scotiabank who's saying that they're nowhere near satiating or we're nowhere near satiating investor demand in PPPs. People still want to be here despite the risk, but it has to work. It has to be bankable. But at the same time, no one can solve risk as a problem. It's about allocating it. It's about being comfortable with it. And you see a really, really strong emphasis on trying to come up with these solutions at the moment but the conversation still rolls on you hear progressive p3s 
again and again and the conversation does move forward but it as i said it does feel like projects are coming out but not everywhere and not always in the way that we're used to yes i think that's definitely the case and you know as i think it was king of Surma, who's ontario's infrastructure minister you know we did a little interview with her at the event which you can see the kind of results of that on our website but she did mention to us that it's a case of the right model for the right job um but I think for people like Infrastructure Ontario, who are now bringing out a whole lot of different models, you know, whether it's DBF, whether it's progressive, whether it's just straight design build, or whether it's you know good old fashioned DBFOM, the job for them is to get the match between the project and the type of model right that not only attracts investors but actually works for the long term of that piece of infrastructure. Recently, we saw Ottawa Light Rail have a review being posted about that. And you can get these partnerships wrong or they can turn out to be wrong. I think they said it was an adversarial relationship had happened. And that's one of the things which the progressive kind of model looks to try and solve. If you have this collaborative emphasis and that is needed in some places because you can see that it does go wrong. And while P3s in the report, they do say protected in terms of financially, the reputation of P3s did definitely take a hit from that and making sure you've got the relationship right is key we saw um, Phil Verster from Metrolink saying that if you choose the right model that can totally change the way that the actual whole project works and it can be a phenomenon he pointed to the alliancing model used on the Union Station as a really big success for that and so you compare that with Ottawa you've got a really mixed picture and the emphasis really does have to be on the right model for the right job, as King Osama said. Yes, and there's also the issue of kind of anecdotal evidence, you know, things like the Ottawa LRT Commission. I think that's actually really, in some ways, useful. Um, obviously, you know, the outcome of that was that it was seen as a failed P3. The model has caused problems. The project has not gone as it should have done. Um but actually, the evidence coming out of that report should provide quite a lot of information to future projects and those wanting to get involved in future projects. And actually, you know, the the commission found that there was proper risk transfer in some cases that it actually saved, I think it was $100 million Canadian dollars in, in one instance. And that quantitative analysis of risk transfer and or successful risk transfer is i think something that the p3 market has probably been missing for many years um interestingly one of the sessions i went to in toronto had michael bennon uh, who's a research scholar at stanford university and he said that some of the work he had done had shown evidence pointing to real risk transfer taking place in many of the contracts that he had looked at where there is a failure event I think that's something that often gets missed. It's very easy to say this project is too expensive for X, Y, Z reasons, and particularly where a project has gone well and that those failures have never happened. It's very difficult to argue, yes, but if it had gone wrong, then the private sector would have taken the hit. I think where projects do go wrong, that is sometimes where you see actually the benefit of the risk transfer. And interestingly, I think there is more effort going into looking at this at the moment. Mm. Yeah, it's worth a shout out actually to a group of academics from the Netherlands and the US who put out a, um, a book quite recently 
called Assessing the Performance Advantage of Public-Private Partnerships. And I actually spoke to one of the authors, Carter Cassidy, who told me that the book offers really one of the first efforts to provide some quantitative analysis of the performance of P3s. And I think actually looking at that, the the good thing is the outcomes are pretty positive for the P3 market. And I think we need more of this coming down the line to sort of combat the anecdotal evidence of, oh, this project hasn't gone very well because of X, Y, and Z, or it's not transferred risk because we haven't really seen that. Definitely. I mean, it's all learning, isn't it? And I think that's the emphasis that we seem to be getting out of every market, which is, as we said before, getting the right model and the right project done in the right way. And everyone makes mistakes when they're trying to learn something. But moving away from the dogmatic approach that we've seen, say, in the UK market previously had led to failures because we had one model that was used on kind of all things and they fell over and it became toxic. Whereas if you can refine it and use the right model, that can only move the relationship forward and prevent, as we saw in Ottawa, I think they even said that both sides had lost sight of what the public interest was. And that is the absolute antithesis of what a public-private partnership should be. It's about building infrastructure for the public, not for one side or the other. Yes, definitely. And I mean, I think it's probably worth noting as well that the CCPB did come out very strongly in response to the um, the report to highlight the areas of the report where it had said, A, the partnership had broken down, but B, that it wasn't necessarily the model that had gone wrong. It was the way it was being carried out by the parties. And that's an important distinction and one that you can sometimes lose sight of. And we probably in the UK, I think, in the debate over whether we should use P3 stroke PFI, that nuance has probably been lost, which is obviously to the detriment then of the, the UK PVP market. I think one of the other big kind of broad brush strands that came out of the conference was the role of Indigenous people in the future of Canada's infrastructure. That's something that I know the CCPP have sort of had sessions on this in the past. It's been a growing area for the industry in Canada for a number of years. But it was quite interesting. We were talking over lunch with a board member from the First Nations Major Projects Coalition. And what I perhaps hadn't uh, realised until that conversation was just how nothing really can be done now in large parts of Canada without the express agreement and effectively partnership of the Indigenous people who live there. Yeah. Um, I think this is an area that's going to grow and one actually that we'll be exploring more ourselves, I think, on the website. Definitely, definitely. I went to a, a session featuring a number of um, leaders in Indigenous uh, different groups and it really was a seat at the table is the minimum for uh, these communities now. And that as a change is is massive and it's equity deals and it's about actually driving these projects for the benefit of the community who with landmark legal cases which you know we spoke to some of the real pioneers of those this impact is huge but the actual social benefit of it could be also huge as well but managing the relationships going forward is not straightforward and it will take negotiation and as you said this is an upheaval of what the previous kind of atmosphere was like but this ESG kind of element is changing all over the world and taking into account minority groups is is important for our industry to do. 
Yeah, and at the end of the day, really, these projects are meant to be for the benefit of the people around them, isn't it? So, you know, if those people are Indigenous people, or if they're groups that have been you know, left behind for whatever reason, wherever you are in the world, actually putting more focus on those groups is probably only going to result in projects that are better designed to meet the needs of those that it's that's there to meet the needs of. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other key themes that you know, we've hinted at a couple of times in this podcast is progressive P3s. They're talked about a lot and sometimes quite speculatively. So it's really interesting to go to a few sessions that get down into the weeds of what progressive P3s are actually like and the reasons why they're selected. And it's all about risk, as we kind of alluded to earlier. They're there to handle really difficult risk where without it, you wouldn't get many bidders or potentially any. And so you're swapping one challenge for another. In progressive P3s, we hear a lot about the challenges of competitive tension and subjectivity and transparency and resourcing for the public sector. I think it's really important that people remember about why they come into the picture because that is sometimes lost and it's sometimes portrayed as a way of just resharing risk where perhaps it's not necessary. But when you listen to the people who are really doing these projects, you can really see that this collaborative relationship is is really important. But it is not without its risks in itself, as I said, with the, say, competitive tension. But where it fits into the landscape of what P3s as a whole do, particularly in Canada, maybe it's more reserved for the big complex projects, say, would Ottawa have fared better with this? I mean, who knows? It's That is speculative in itself. But it definitely has a role to play. And I think that the mystique around progressive P3s should fade and then it can be used and brought into the conversation and in its rightful place. Yes, that would be that would be good to see, wouldn't it? And I think um, you know the, the straitjacketed view of P three as a particular model is perhaps outdated now, and then needs probably to be a bit more of an acceptance that you can use various different approaches. But you know, it'll involve the public sector and the private sector working together, uh, usually with private sector finance, and that you know, that's a, a good way of looking at what p3 actually is just one last thing on progressive p3s which i thought was interesting is just how similar that they largely are to normal p3s i know that might be an obvious point to some but the end result of a fixed price securitized uh long-term p3 contract that can have the you know dbf o and m on it can be a result it can be exactly the same and also the way that they're procured by authorities or at least prepared for is quite similar in terms of the due diligence, the kind of firms that you're dealing with, the value for money assessments. So they're not quite as different as people think they are. Obviously, the key difference is the fact that you've got this long-term scoping and that collaboration. So I think I'm going to be writing a longer piece on progressive P3s particularly and trying to kind of illuminate what happens inside. So um, watch out for that. Now, I've noticed our colleague Hackett P. Dillsworth is back with us. It's hard to miss him today. Hackett, what's going on with those socks? 
Uh, these are my new Acon socks, given to everyone staying in the Sheraton Centre for the CCPPP conference. Aren't they great? You mean you're wearing a pair of sponsored socks? Absolutely. You know, you can sponsor anything at CCPPP, and people often do. The Wi-Fi code, even some of the room keys were branded. Well, the socks obviously work as an advertising tool, given that we've now mentioned them on this podcast. Yeah, well, socks are actually a bit of the theme of the conference, I thought. And I thought we'd covered all the main points earlier in the episode. What did I miss? Well, one panellist suggested Mike Renchek from nuclear power provider Bruce Power was wearing a pair based on a particular nuclear isotope. So garish were the colours emanating from his ankle area. All in good fun, I'm sure. Uh, what did you think of the conference, Hackett, beyond what was on people's feet? It's all right, but uh, to be honest, I wondered if you could give me a bit of help with something. Fire away. Well, how exactly do you say the conference organiser's name? Over the course of the two days, I had CCPPP, C2P3, 2C3P. I'm pretty sure I even met C3PO and R2D2 at one point, although, to be honest, that might have been a dream, as I nodded off at one point, having slightly overindulged at the drinks reception on the Monday night. Ah, yes, CCPPP's legendary first night reception, followed by the young leaders' after party. They always come up with some good and interesting venues for the drinks reception, and this year was no exception. Yes, indeed. I was able to bring out my inner kingpin and throw down some balls as we all headed to a bar with some bowling alleys. There was even a prize for most strikes in a row, although I didn't quite hit that level. Still, at least I managed not to bounce my ball down the alley, unlike some others I could mention. There was this one... Oh, no, uh, let me um, stop you there, Hacky. I think no one needs to, to embarrass which member of P3 bullet, um, P3 industry couldn't actually manage to bowl very well. So thanks very much, everyone, and uh, see you soon. Fair enough. Fair enough.